Dear Father, please be with us just now. Again, as with every book of the Bible, please help us to find Jesus Christ in the book of Daniel. Amen. Well, you know, I've always kind of um, shied away a little bit from uh, prophecy, not because I don't think it's important and uh, not because I don't think we should be studying it. I guess um, I just see a couple potential dangers if we focus on prophecy too much or to exclusion or if this is the starting point for, um, for maybe coming into this message. And that is, uh, you know, anytime we get into prophecy and uh, dates and the future, uh, two things are often stimulated to a great deal. One is fear and the other is excitement. Just as an example, when I was maybe 12 or 13, um, I went to a summer camp and it was a Christian summer camp and uh, we had this uh, pastor that came every evening and gave us uh, talks about uh, mainly end time events and I don't remember that much uh, quite honestly in terms of detail but I do remember his first talk was about uh, the flood and I really brought home the people pounding on the ark begging Noah to let him in and I just remember him saying don't let the doors of mercy swing shut on you and I remember being afraid and uh, then the mark of the beast the lake of fire these were the the subjects pretty much uh, every night and then our camp counselor which every other year you know was kind of a, a light-hearted individual would talk about fun stuff and he wanted to talk about the mark of the beast every single evening of that camp it seemed like so it just got driven home and I remember for a good six months after that camp being just scared to death and uh, my parents you know, I think to uh, reassure me, said, well, why don't you read the Bible? Maybe, you know, that'll make you feel better. And it didn't occur to me at the time that Genesis might not be the best place to start if you're afraid of God. And so reading Genesis, you know, I remember flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and I was pretty sure the mark of the beast was right around the corner. So I stopped reading, and I remember for several years after that, felt uh, uh, delighted that I was no longer thinking about God. I no, no longer had those fearful thoughts, and it was out of my mind. Okay, so uh, it seems to me that you know, if eternal life is to know God, if Jesus Christ is the clearest picture of God and he came to reveal his character, that ultimately love awakens love within our hearts. And so I think the message ultimately that we bring to the world is Jesus Christ. And I think a fear message does uh, oftentimes uh, bring in a lot of baptisms because we're afraid and the world's going to fall apart, and there's a lake of fire, and I better get baptized. If, that, if, any, if in any way that blocks the ultimate, which is to know God as a friend, then it could be detrimental. For some reason, I am on lots of email lists. I don't know how I didn't sign up for these, but of individuals who go to a lot of work working on the dates. And these are really interesting to read, where uh, someone has figured out Jesus is coming back 2010, and here's a... Here's a schedule based on some verse in Ezekiel or something like that. Most uh, fascinating one uh, in terms of just creativity was, uh, do you remember when Jesus, after he was resurrected, he told the fishermen or Peter, cast your nets on the other side. And anyone remember how many fish they pulled in? 153. Well, that number has to be significant. It must mean something. And so uh, I think uh, this person decided, well, let's add it to maybe 1844. Let's add it to this. And, and we ended up with a date that, um, you know, so we can, we can get really out of control uh, sometimes with uh, prophecy. 
So I guess if we're settled on who God is, if we're settled on the most important thing that Jesus Christ came to reveal, then maybe we're safe to go on and to investigate some of these other things. So Daniel will include, especially next time, uh, we'll go through some prophecy. And I think it is pretty exciting. But it's exciting if we know who God is. So the book of Daniel ends this way. Daniel, I now command you to keep the message of this book secret until the end of time, even though many people will go everywhere searching for the knowledge to be found in it. And I'm sure many of you know the song, Lift Up the Trumpet, Knowledge Increases, Men Run to and Fro. That's this section here. And I think what that ultimately is referring to is a knowledge of the book of Daniel. Knowledge will increase about this book, about the prophecy. This is how the Good News Bible translates this verse in a very much different way. He said to me, And now, Daniel, close the book and put a seal on it until the end of the world. Meanwhile, many people will waste their efforts trying to understand what is happening. So hopefully uh, these next two Bible studies won't be wasted efforts trying to understand Daniel. Okay, so coming back here to our little chart again. And so far we've kind of gone through... Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and their relationship to the three invasions of Jerusalem and Daniel, remember we said, was taken out in the first invasion. And he, uh, boy, he had such a long uh, ministry here uh, going over, I mean, he was 90, 100 years old uh, in the end of his life, still writing and still having uh, a prominent uh, effect in the world with people like Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, And so this is how the book starts out. In the third year that Jehoiakim was king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia attacked Jerusalem and surrounded the city. The Lord let him capture King Jehoiakim and seize some of the temple treasures. Again, God said several times, I'm going to do it. I'm going to burn the city down. And no, he let, he allowed King Jehoiakim to do it, or the king of Babylon to do it. He took some prisoners back with him to the temple of his gods in Babylon and put the captured treasures in the temple storerooms. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief official, to select from among the Israelite exiles some young men of the royal family and of noble families. They had to be handsome, intelligent, well-trained, quick to learn, and free from physical defects so that they would be qualified to serve in the royal royal court. Ashpenaz was to teach them to read and to write the Babylonian language. The king also gave orders that every day they were to be given the same food and wine as the members of the royal court. After three years of this training, they were to appear before the king. Among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These are their Hebrew names, all of whom were found from the tribe of Judah. And remember, that's all that's left. Those ten northern tribes are gone. So what went off into captivity, you were either tribe of Judah or Benjamin for the most part. And it's interesting here what happened. Remember, their names were changed. And they were changed to reflect now the Babylonian gods. So Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belshazzar, which means lady protect the king. Hananiah, wonderful. God has been gracious. Was changed to Shadrach. I am very fearful of God. Mishael, who is what God is? Not entirely clear exactly what that means. Was to Meshach, I am of little account. Azariah, the Lord has helped to Abednego, servant of the Shining One, probably the god Nebo. Okay, so they're all stripped of their Hebrew uh, significance here to a name that would reflect a different culture, different gods. Okay, so you recall the story here about uh, the diet. And I think there may be an additional aspect, I believe there is, 
to why Daniel and his three friends did not eat the food in the royal court. Daniel made up his mind not to let himself become ritually unclean by eating the food and drinking the wine of the royal court. So he asked Ashpenaz to help him, and God made Ashpenaz sympathetic to Daniel. Ashpenaz, however, was afraid of the king, so he said to Daniel, the king has decided what you are to eat and drink, and if you don't look as fit as the other young men, he may kill me. So Daniel went to the guard whom Ashpenaz had placed in charge of him and his three friends. Test us for ten days, he said. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare us with the young men who are eating the food of the royal court and base your decision on how we look. He agreed to let them try it for ten days. When the time was up, they looked healthier and stronger than all those who had been eating the royal food. So from then on, the guard let them continue to eat vegetables instead of what the king provided. And I understand the word here, vegetables, could include other food beyond just veggies. But God gave the four young men knowledge and skill in literature and philosophy. In addition, he gave Daniel skill in interpreting visions and dreams. At the end of the three years set by the king, Ashpenaz took all the young men to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them all, and Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah impressed him more than any of the others. So they became members of the king's court. No matter what question the king asked or what problem he raised, these four knew ten times more than any other fortune teller or magician in his whole kingdom. Daniel remained at the royal court until Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, conquered Babylon. Okay, now, one idea would be, well, it's uh, primarily a dietary issue. And I think there are lots of reasons that uh, we could trumpet about a healthy diet and that uh, meat and wine, that that's uh, not necessarily the best uh, diet for us to have. But I think ultimately there was a bigger reason that Daniel and his three friends didn't want to um, have the same diet. And that is the, the food, these were offered to the idols, to the gods. And so eating the food was really succumbing, succumbing giving in, supporting those false gods. So by refusing to eat the food, they really were making a statement about uh, loyalty to their god. Gods are never vegetarians in the Bible. They always get the meat. Okay, so uh, they avoided the meat as a statement about their god. Now, here's what's a little bit challenging. In one case, we have Daniel not eating to make a statement, but Paul would almost seem to make the opposite statement. And I want to see if we can reconcile uh, these two uh, passages here. In, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul talks a lot about diet and food offered to idols. And he would say, so then about eating the food offered to idols, that's the same subject. We know that an idol stands for something that does not really exist. Beautiful. We know that there's only one God, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and even though there are many of these gods and lords, yet there is for us only one God, the Father, who is the creator of all things and for whom we live. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live but not everyone knows this truth. Some people have been so used to idols that to this day, when they eat such food, they think of it as food that belongs to an idol. Their conscience is weak, and they feel they are defiled by the food. Okay, was Daniel's conscience weak? He thought there really was a God. Is that why he didn't eat? Food, however, will not improve our relation with God. We shall not lose anything if we do not eat, nor shall we gain anything if we do eat. None of you should be looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And notice, you are free to eat anything sold in the meat market. 
eat it. Because he just said, there's no God behind it. Those gods aren't real. Don't be spooked out by eating that food because there is no God behind that. Without asking any questions because of your conscience. For as the scripture says, the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you decide to go, eat what is set before you without asking any questions because of your conscience. But if someone tells you the food was offered to idols, then do not eat that food for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, but notice, not for your own conscience. You know that that because it was offered to an idol, it didn't change the food in any way, but you would not eat for the sake of the other person, for the other person's conscience. Well, then someone asks, and here's the great question, why should my freedom to act be limited by another person's conscience? That's a great question. If I thank God for my food, why should anyone criticize me about food for which I give thanks? Well, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for God's glory. Live in such a way as to cause no trouble, either to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. Just do as I do. I try to please everyone in all that I do, not thinking of my own good, but of the good of all so that they might be saved. And so Paul would say, you know what? I would not eat something, not because I have any problem with it, not because I think it's wrong, but if it would trouble other people, if it would shake their faith, yes, I'm willing to limit my freedom. I'm willing not to do certain things in order to not be a stumbling stone to someone else. All right, and so I think really this, is all, this all fits. At one time in history, Daniel would say, I am not going to eat that food as a statement about my God. And another time, Paul would say, I'm going to eat that food because I know there's, there's no God behind that anyway. And I'm not spooked out about food that was offered to an idol. But if it would trouble someone else, I won't eat. And so I think the last part that Paul says here is really where we can harmonize. Basically, do everything to God's glory. Sometimes you will eat, sometimes you won't eat. And so I think an important lesson here is notice things done differently in different times. And the Bible cannot be read as a law book, code book, where we go through and we say, there's a rule, and that applies to me today. There's another rule that applies to me today. Because we see, really, God meeting people where they are with a whole different set of rules for a different set of circumstances. And the most glaring example I could think of, there are probably hundreds of them, uh, was this rule back in Deuteronomy 14. You might remember we talked about this, where they're talking about the place of worship. And God would say, but the place the Lord your God will choose to put his name may be too far away. He may bless you with so much that you can't carry a tenth of your income that far. If so... Exchange the tenth part of your income for silver. Take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, liquor, whatever you choose. Then you and your whole family will eat and enjoy yourselves there in the presence of the Lord your God. Would that fit today? It's too far for you to make it to Riverside for church. Maybe that's where you go. It's just too far in the morning. And so take that tithe and stop off at a liquor store, have a party. No, it does, it, it, it does not fit. You cannot apply this to today. God was very gracious a long time ago under a dramatically different circumstance. And um, so we have God meeting people where they are. And so the Bible really should be read as a book that reveals the character of God, not as a book that gives us an extensive list that applies specifically in each and every point. So, in one time, eat the food. In another circumstance, uh, don't eat the food.
Daniel 2. Now we get to a dream. In the second year that Nebuchadnezzar was king, he had a dream. It worried him so much that he couldn't sleep. So he sent for his fortune tellers, magicians, sorcerers, and wizards to come and explain the dream to him. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I'm worried about a dream I've had. I want to know what it means. They answered the king in Aramaic. May your majesty live forever. Tell us your dream and we will explain it to you. It's a pretty good trick, huh? The king is smart. He said to them, I have made up my mind that you must tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. If you can't, I'll have you torn limb from limb and make your houses a pile of ruins. Wow. So they have to tell him the dream and then interpret it. And notice, this uh, first time I read this, I just couldn't believe it. Here's their reply. What your majesty is asking for is so difficult that no one can do it for you except the gods. And notice, they do not live among human beings. This is the spectacular thing about Christianity. We have a God who lived among human beings. I mean, this is unthinkable here, that these people, as they think about the gods, they certainly do not live among human beings. And just imagine, I mean, if you were here in Old Testament times and you're going to tell people, you know what, God is coming, he's going to come in human form, and that you would actually try to persuade someone that this would be the coming of God, that he'd come as a baby, that he'd be so humble, spend most of his life as a carpenter, and uh, his first big sermon would start out, blessed are the meek, that he'd be betrayed by someone, and that his action towards that person would be to wash his feet the night before he died, and that he would ultimately allow his own creatures to crucify him. I mean, it, you know, it just would not fit by anyone's description of what the gods or God would be like. So, uh, unbelievable. But the king said to Daniel, who is also called Belshazzar, can you tell me what I dreamed and what it means? And I love Daniel's humble reply here. Daniel replied, Your majesty, there is no wizard, magician, fortune teller, or astrologer who can tell you that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has informed your majesty what will happen in the future. Now I tell you the dream, the vision you had while you were asleep. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about the future. And God, who reveals mysteries, showed you what is going to happen. Now this mystery was revealed to me not because I'm wiser than anyone else, but so that your majesty may learn the meaning of your dream and understand the thoughts that have come to you. Now the reason I underlined here you dreamed about the future is there is a huge controversy about when the book of Daniel was written. And the reason there's such a big controversy is if we take the position that the book of Daniel was written back here in 600 BC, well, there's a big dilemma um, for some people. And let me just go through this a little bit. My Good News Bible has a very strong footnote about the authorship. The repeated allusions to the desecration of the Jerusalem temple suggest the time of persecution about 175-164 BC. It's amazing, right there in print. Um, must have been written around this time. Not, not uh, during the time when uh, Daniel is reported to have lived. Okay, why is there such a controversy? Well, just to give you one example here, we skip forward to the third dream in Daniel 8. Here we have the ram that you saw had two horns represents the kingdom of Media and Persia. The goat represented the kingdom of Greece. And the prominent horn between his eyes is the first king, who's the big king of Greece, Alexander. So um, here we have something so specific, naming nations that hadn't even, weren't even on the radar 
And here they are mentioned by name. And so we either have a choice that, well, either God knows the future and um, is looking into the future and is listing these things about the future, as Daniel just said to Nebuchadnezzar, these are about the future, or they're written um, after the fact. So uh, just a few points, because I think uh, some of these things to me are, uh, if I'm looking for evidence, is there a God, is there not a God, uh, these are the kinds of things that, that provide me with some uh, encouragement that, uh, yeah, all of this is real inspired. So let, let's just go through a few things about the dating. First of all, there are so many very specific things mentioned about Daniel's interaction during this time. Daniel becomes a very manipulative book, from my understanding, if someone came along much later and inserted all of these uh, little comments to make it sound like it really happened by Daniel. So we have these years mentioned. Daniel 7.1, in the first year that Belshazzar was king of Babylonia, I had a dream. In the third year that Belshazzar was king, I saw a second vision. So if there was no Daniel, these are added later. Uh, wow, this is uh, really just a bunch of lies, it would seem to me. And then we have people, very specific people mentioned in Daniel 9. Darius the Mede, who was the son of Xerxes, ruled over the, over the king of Babylonia. In the first year of his reign, I was studying the sacred books and thinking about the 70 years that Jerusalem would be in ruins according to what the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah and Daniel were contemporaries. So we skip over to Jeremiah. I didn't read this, but in Jeremiah 29, the Lord says, when Babylonia's 70 years are over, I will show my concern for you and keep my promise to bring you back home. Daniel and Jeremiah are communicating here. And remember that during the third invasion, when they're all carted off, how they... The Babylonians wanted to find Jeremiah, take care of Jeremiah. And almost certainly it was because Daniel, who was very high up in power in Babylonia, made sure that the prophet Jeremiah was looked after. So we have this kind of back and forth here between uh, Jeremiah and Daniel. And what I find interesting about the 70 years is in Daniel 1, remember I said the third year that Jehoiakim was king, the captivity, we know this was 606 B.C., and Daniel 1 ends with this verse. Daniel remained at the royal court until Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, conquered Babylonia. Okay, we know that was 538 BC. This is when they came back to Jerusalem. And with our inclusive reckoning of time here, this is 70 years. Pretty amazing. Seemed to work out. A little more evidence. Remember, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Daniel. So we have this verse in Ezekiel. Son of man, tell the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Almighty Lord says. We read this whole passage last time. But it ends this way. You think that you are wiser than Daniel and that no secret can be hidden from you. So whoever went in and added all these verses in Daniel also had to go into Ezekiel and add a verse here about um, Daniel as well to make it all fit. I mean, it just seems to me it would be too hard for someone to, hundreds of years later, go in and fix all the books so that it makes it seem like there really was a Daniel living at that time. makes more sense to me to take the position there really was a Daniel that lived around the time of 600 B.C. and that he wrote what happened during that time. Then we have another problem. If we're going to put the book of Daniel written much later, the words of Jesus. You will see the awful horror of which the prophet Daniel spoke. So Jesus would seem to give authority to this book was written by Daniel. And if the book was written by Daniel during that time, then we have some evidence 
here about things that would happen hundreds and hundreds of years later that God foresaw, and that is, uh, to my way of thinking, evidence that um, God exists. Okay, just one small piece of the puzzle, obviously. The other thing, and I won't go into this, but obviously textual analysis and looking at the language of how things were written. Obviously, language changes a lot over hundreds of years. And uh, what's fascinating about the book of Daniel is that it goes in between Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic. A whole large section of Aramaic in the middle of Daniel. And so my understanding, not being a Hebrew or Aramaic scholar, is that the language used fits for that time, 500, 600 B.C. It would be very hard, I think, hundreds of years later to write something in both Hebrew and Aramaic that fit for something written so long ago. So anyway, the evidence, I think, would support there really was a Daniel who really wrote at this time and that these visions and things really um, are an important message for us. So you remember the first vision about the statue. Head of gold, um, chest and arms of silver, waist of bronze, iron legs, and then feet mixed with iron and clay. So just in a nutshell, here's how Daniel would summarize this dream. This was the dream. Now I will tell your majesty what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of all kings. You are the head of gold. So there we have it defined. The head of gold is Babylon. After you, there will be another empire, not as great as yours. Okay, so what was the next empire after uh, Babylon? And after that, a third, an empire of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. Greece, again, when we talked about Daniel 8, these are even mentioned by name, Medo-Persia. They're lumped together by Daniel and um, Greece. And then there will be a fourth empire, as strong as iron, which shatters and breaks everything. And just as iron shatters everything, it will shatter and crush all the earlier empires. And we won't talk about this until next time, but um, I, I will make a case for this being Rome and uh, not uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, but we'll, we'll have to save that next time. You also saw that the feet and the toes were partly clay and partly iron. And then finally, you saw how a stone broke loose from a cliff without anyone touching it, and how it struck the statue made of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God is telling your majesty what will happen in the future. Again, I have told you exactly what you dreamed and have given you its true meaning. So what is the rock, the stone? Well, I, I think we can jump forward to Peter and uh, make sense of this. But anyway, we're going to add to this table next time. So far, the only thing that's been labeled for us by Daniel or by God is that the head of gold is Babylon. And I'll try to support this next time that we go in order to Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome as the major empires from there. But what is the rock? Well, I think it's Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus. Peter would say, come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones and let yourself be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. The symbolism here is really important. Next time we're going to talk about the temple, the cleansing of the temple. 
And uh, we are described as stones joined to the living stone. We're described as pillars in the temple. We're described as priests in the temple. And uh, I hope next time we can maybe make sense of what does the temple need to be cleansed of? Okay, but all of this ties together even back to this uh, first uh, dream in Daniel 2. Okay, so Daniel will conclude this way. Or Nebuchadnezzar would finally conclude this way. Your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings and the one who reveals mysteries. I know this because you have been able to explain this mystery. And then he gave Daniel a high position, presented him with many splendid gifts, put him in charge of the province of Babylon and made him the head of all the royal advisors. So he became very, very powerful, Daniel did. Now, here's what uh, I think is fascinating. There's no break. We just read right on. And here's what happened next. King Nebuchadnezzar had a gold statue solid gold, made 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and he had it set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the king gave orders for all his officials to come together, and you know how it went. When the music played, they all had to bow down. And so is it coincidental that we had this um, statue here with head of gold and all the way down? Is it coincidental that the first thing King Nebuchadnezzar does is to build a solid gold statue? What do you think he's trying to do? He doesn't want to just be the head of gold, right? Let's make the whole thing gold. And so I think he's really saying, you know what, that's a great uh, dream and that's an interesting interpretation. Now, why don't we just uh, make my empire last forever? And so he makes the whole thing out of gold and of course everyone has to bow down and worship. And you know, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused. So he's furious. He said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you refuse to worship my God and to bow down to the gold statue I have set up? Now then, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets and all the other instruments, bow down and worship the statue. If you do not, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Do you think there's any God who can save you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and I love their answer here, your majesty, we will not try to defend ourselves. If the God whom we serve is able to save us from the blazing furnace and from your power, then he will. But notice, but even if he doesn't, your majesty may be sure that we will not worship your God and we will not bow down to the gold statue that you have set up. What I love about this here is, you know what, God might not save us, but uh, that's not shaking our faith uh, one little bit. So often we do things in a conditional manner. Um, Jacob's prayer after this, watching the ladder come down from heaven and his prayer was this. Then Jacob made a vow to the Lord, if you will be with me and protect me on the journey I'm making and give me food and clothing and if I return safely to my father's home, lots of lots of conditions there, then you will be my God. Okay, that's not a great uh, prayer of faith. You know, if I get good grades, graduate, get into the right residency, then you'll be my God. No, um, <laughs> So the prayer of these three men or what they said to Nebuchadnezzar is just right on. You know what? We're not sure what God's going to do, but we're, we trust him anyway and uh, we put our fate into his hands. Exactly the right attitude. Of course, you know, they're thrown into the fire and men are killed trying to even get them to the fire. It's so hot. And um, so Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and says, Behold, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And it's not clear to me what would make him think to even use this kind of uh, language. 
must have been something special about that fourth person. Just other versions, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, or the fourth looks like a god, or has the appearance of a god. So these three men in the presence of God are perfectly safe, and they get out of the fire, not singed in the slightest, in God's presence. Interesting. So here's Nebuchadnezzar's response. The king said, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued these men who serve and trust him. They disobeyed my orders and risked their lives rather than bow down and worship any god except their own. And now I command that if anyone of any nation, race, or language speaks disrespectfully disrespectfully of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is to be torn limb from limb. Still has those same coercive methods there. And his house is to be made a pile of ruins. Okay, it doesn't quite have a Christ-like character yet, but um, anyway, tear them limb from limb. There's no other God who can rescue like this. Now, here's what I like about the progression of Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, it's amazing how many times God has been successful with the most powerful person on earth. Nebuchadnezzar, we'll talk next time about Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar had quite a conversion experience. Daniel 4, while I was asleep, I had a vision of a huge tree in the middle of the earth. It grew bigger and bigger until it reached the sky and could be seen by everyone in the world. Its leaves were beautiful and it was loaded down with fruit, enough for the whole world to eat. Wild animals rested in its shade. Birds built nests in its branches and every kind of living being ate its fruit. While I was thinking about the vision, I saw coming down from heaven an angel, alert and watchful. He proclaimed in a loud voice, cut the tree down and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, drive the animals from under it and the birds out of its branches. So he has another dream. And of course, Daniel to the rescue again. And the king says, none of my royal advisors could tell me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. At this, Daniel, who is also called Belshazzar, was so alarmed that he could not say anything because he knew what the dream meant. The king said to him, Daniel, don't let the dream and the message alarm you. And he replied, your majesty, I wish that the dream and its explanation applied to your enemies and not to you. This then is what it means. Your majesty, and this is what the supreme God has declared will happen to you. You will be driven away from a human society and will live with wild animals. For seven years, you will eat grass like an ox and sleep in the open air where the dew will fall on you. Then you will admit that the supreme God controls all human kingdoms and that he can give them to anyone he chooses. The angel ordered the stump to be left in the ground. This means that you will become king again when you acknowledge that God rules all the world. So then, your majesty, follow my advice. Stop sinning. Do what is right and be merciful to the poor. Then you will continue to be prosperous. And what Nebuchadnezzar would go on to do tells us really what was at the root of his uh, problem. So only 12 months later, while he was walking around on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, look how great Babylon is. I built it as my capital city to display my power and might, my glory and majesty. But before the words were out of his mouth, a voice spoke from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, listen to what I have to say. Your royal power is now taken away from you. Pride. You will be driven away from human society, live with wild animals, and eat grass like an ox for seven years. The words came true immediately. Nebuchadnezzar was driven out of human society and ate grass like an ox. The dew fell on his body and his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails as long as bird claws. When the seven years had passed, said the king, I looked up at the sky and my sanity returned. 
I praised the supreme God and gave honor and glory to the one who lives forever. When my sanity returned, my honor, my majesty, and the glory of my kingdom were given back to me. My officials and my noblemen welcomed me, and I was given back my royal power with even greater honor than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, honor, and glorify the king of heaven. Everything he does is right and just, and he can humble anyone who acts proudly. And I like it that after three times saying, and if anyone disagrees, may he be torn limb from limb, he doesn't include it now. Okay, he just ends it there. He's humbled. Okay, so God won King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, pretty, uh, pretty remarkable here. And uh, what we won't do here, but I'll just uh, bring up here as, uh, as a last point, and then we'll get into the rest of the visions, is we have this other vision, and we have four huge beasts that come up again, each of them different from the others. The first one looked like a lion. What was the symbol of Babylon in that time? It was a lion, the lion. It had wings like an eagle. While I was watching, the wings were torn off. The beast was lifted up and made to stand up straight, and then a human mind was given to it. I think that's referring to King Nebuchadnezzar. His wings were torn off for a period of time, but then um, he regained his sanity again. And I think the key to understanding these visions is that they parallel each other. They overlap. Each one refines, adds significance to the previous vision. And so as we go through these next time, uh, I think we get to some uh, pretty exciting stuff. But uh, let's save that for next week. So let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you have provided us with evidence, clear evidence as to your existence. And uh, most of all, of course, beyond that you are powerful, beyond that you can see the future, we admire most of all the kind of person that you are as revealed by Jesus Christ. Amen.